Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Are you savoring summer, grilling and chilling? I know you are. I hope you'll stay tuned because I have tips and techniques to make sure that you are making the most of a delicious summer coming up all throughout the hour because we are heating it up in your radio. I do love sharing my passion for food here on the radio and this show full of delicious conversation is intended to feed your soul. Every weekend, I cover everything from food to travel, wine conversation, cocktail inspiration, cookbook discoveries, artisans, and more. And so, let's get this party started, shall we? If you've just tuned in, I'm celebrating 17 years on the radio, gratefully. I'm a CIA grad, the Culinary Institute of America, a certified sommelier, and a seven-time cookbook author. And so you can savor the flavor and gain culinary intelligence by tuning in. And you'll also find podcasts of past shows on iTunes. Just search Chef Jamie Gwen. Plus, I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. And on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I hope you'll become a friend and a fan at Chef Jamie Gwen. So, it's time for gazpacho, that is. I like to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts to make you the best cook you know. And then coming up, you won't want to miss it because we are stacking the flavor cards in your favor. David Leet will be here to discuss brining. And before the end of the hour, we're getting boozy. Well, we're cooking boozy, so stay tuned. Back to gazpacho, though. When the weather warms, gazpacho feels right. And I have a love affair with gazpacho. Maybe it's because I was raised on it or because it's a blank slate for a palette of flavors. If you top it with chilled shrimp uh, or even grilled shrimp off the barbecue or some really buttery brioche croutons or even better yet, a mix of those two things and a spoonful of burrata, oh, you have a decadent summer meal. And I think gazpacho is the soup for cooks who don't like recipes. It's a cold Spanish classic soup, right? Traditionally made with ripe tomatoes. And it's very adaptable. And it springs summer all the way. Now, there is, of course, an Andalusian gazpacho that you make with bread and copious amounts of garlic, a white gazpacho that I love. It's a very different recipe, and it's the bonus recipe this week, so don't touch your dial because I'll tell you how to get it coming up. The red tomato gazpacho, though, is the classic. It's a simple technique that takes just minutes. It's the perfect starter in a shot glass. You can even spike it, by the way, with tequila or vodka. It makes a really nice main course for warm summer nights. And it's more of a drink than a soup everywhere in Seville, Spain, where the recipe comes from. But it's not a vegetable puree or the watered-down salsa kind that you might have unfortunately had. In Spain, it 
often has bread added for viscosity. It's creamy, orangey pink rather than lipstick red as we know it. And that's because a large quantity of olive oil is required for making delicious gazpacho. And the emulsion of red tomato and pale green cucumber and golden olive oil produces that gorgeous bright color and that smooth, almost fluffy texture. So let's make a batch of gazpacho the right way, shall we? The base of a great gazpacho starts with epic tomatoes. And because the preparation is raw, there is no hiding a substandard specimen of tomatoes. That means that the juicy tomatoes you are finding right now, bright red at the farmer's market, are perfect for a tried and true base. But if you can't find very ripe, beautiful tomatoes, You can substitute canned tomatoes if necessary. I do encourage you, though, to use the ultra-pure tomatoes in puree. Now, to my gazpacho, I like some accents, like soft herbs, basil, mint, parsley, cilantro. All are welcome. I stick with the basic. I like some basil leaves, and I don't like the herbs to overpower the gazpacho. Some chefs I know like to spice it up with a little bit of fresh or dried hot pepper or chili. You can add some chopped garlic as an accent. And then I think the acidic element that brightens the soup is super important. So sherry vinegar is the traditional. It's the main go-to, but other vinegars work well and you can go with lime juice, juice rather, if you like that sort of splash or tang of acid flavor, a dash of hot sauce, always welcome as well. When it comes to gazpacho's texture, as with peanut butter, there are two camps. There is the chunky camp and the smooth camp, and it can be rusty and chunky, or it can be smooth and elegant. Now, if you like texture and chunk, uh, I say do it by hand and mix it in. If you like it smooth and sippable, a food processor works well. I like my gazpacho both ways. Doesn't surprise you, right? So for me, I make the base in a blender because I find that my very powerful boat motor, as I call it, of a blender creates really fluffy texture. It blends till you get that wonderful creamy mouth feel. And I find it the best tool for the job. And then I finish with uh, diced or reserved vegetables in the end. Now, for a thicker soup, as I mentioned, shards of rustic bread, preferably like a country loaf, an artisan bread, or even a handful of raw almonds can add really wonderful richness. And don't forget, copious amounts of olive oil, more than you think you need. And as for garnishes... Purists will opt for nothing but tomato goodness, but I love toppings on everything. So a spoonful of ricotta cheese or crumbled goat cheese, garlicky croutons. How about crispy prosciutto where you take the slices of prosciutto, bake them on a baking sheet until crisp and then crumble them or lay a crispy slice of prosciutto over the top of the bowl or the cup. You will be a culinary hero. If you want to up your gazpacho game. How about a few steamed clams or a crab claw? Oh, that sounds delicious right about now. 
And that is what I think makes a great red gazpacho. Now, you will find a bevy of variations of gazpacho on my website at chefjamie.com. And I'd love to know how you make your gazpacho. So email me, please, jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. But here's the bonus for this week. The white gazpacho that I mentioned uh, comes from an area of Spain, Andalusia. It's an Andalusian gazpacho. And I think it is one of my top 10 most favorite things to make. I serve it as a first course. It's very light. It is classic white. It is served cold. It has no tomato. And grapes cut in half, preferably red seedless, are the traditional garnish. But during the summer, I mix it up and I'll do small cubes of watermelon And then if I'm craving the Andalusian gazpacho in an off-summer month, I've done diced apples on top and it's really tasty. This recipe is based with lightly toasted or stale country bread and it has slivered almonds and garlic and olive oil and a splash of vinegar and those red grapes bring out this wonderful sweetness and there's a balance of tangy and creamy and it is so delicious and I would love to share it. It is not posted on my website, but I will gladly share it with you. Just email me, jamie at chefjamie.com for this week's bonus recipe, which is my signature white gazpacho and Trust me, you'll have your summer made, really. I keep it in mason jars in the fridge and I have been known to sip it straight from the jar, but I always have it on hand. And please don't touch your dial because coming up, my sweet friend David Leet of Leet's Culinaria is here and we will answer the question to brine or not to brine. Wait till you hear. His Washington Post article is getting lots of rave. It's a new brine, and you won't want to miss it. There's lots more fabulous food in your radio. Coming up next, don't go away. Chef Jamie Gwen, be right back. Satiating your appetite every weekend. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Pop a cork, raise a glass, and get ready to cook. Wise words from Emily and Matt Clifton, because after years of meticulous daily experimentation for their food blog, Nerds with Knives, Emily and Matt noted one persistent ingredient throughout their favorite dishes, alcohol. In their first cookbook entitled Cork and Knife, they're sharing dishes in which alcohol adds complexity and flavor, from how to use vodka to make 
extra crispy batter for fish to a tequila and lime shrimp scampi and a classic chicken piccata. We're building complex flavors today because authors Emily and Matt Clifton are here to dish. Congratulations to you both. I love your cookbook. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I I will tell you, I thought there was a lot of great culinary insight in it because there's a chemistry behind cooking with alcohol. I think you need to know how to and master the the subtleties of it, which is a great dichotomy to the, you know, complex punch that it adds. So Emily, if you would start, share the three most important tips when cooking with alcohol that you kick off the book with. I think those are really important. So our number one tip is that you really don't need to spend a lot of money to cook with alcohol, but you do want to cook with something that you would drink. You know, something like, uh, you know, a nice, decent bottle of white, you know, not something that you would necessarily buy when, um, you know, your, your boss is coming to town. But, <laughs> sure. um, you know, for, for a simple dinner, that's what you would cook with. Yes. And like Julia Child always said, a little wine for the sauce, a little wine for me. You buy a, a good enough quality, you'd be willing to drink it. Yes, and happy to drink it. Well, we're usually pretty happy to drink most anything. So. Yes, I, I, you know, in telling you that I love your book, I wondered if that made me a lush, but I was fine with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we've accepted that pretty, uh, pretty well with ourselves. A good realization. So that our next tip is if you're not sure what you want to cook with, the best, uh, the best thing to do is to go to a wine store mm-hmm. and talk to the people that work there. So... Tell them what you're cooking, what you want to spend, and ask them for recommendations. Very often, they'll point you in a direction that you may not have thought of, Mm. and they might give you great ideas. And they'll certainly keep you from overspending for the type of dish that you're trying to cook. Very smart. And so our, our, our third tip is to never, ever, ever use cooking wine the stuff that you find at the grocery store usually by the vinegars. Thank you. Um, because by law, it has to contain salt. So, And it often has lots of different additives that keep it from going bad. So it just doesn't taste good. And if it doesn't taste good, it's going to make your food not taste good as well. So that is our third tip. It's better to use a very inexpensive bottle of something that you buy in the liquor store than to buy any kind of cooking wine. Yes. And even sherry or anything like that. I wholeheartedly agree. Copious amounts of sodium are found in a bottle of cooking wine and it should be left there on the shelf at the grocery store. Thank you. Yes, definitely. So Matt, you both cook with everything in the bar, whiskey, sherry, tequila, limoncello, right? I know you are the the chemist, so for a moment, talk about cooking with alcohol, please, and the low boiling point, because I think it's something really worthy of deeper understanding. Really, most of the time when we talk about alcohol, it's it's liquor. We're not we're not cooking with pure ethanol, which is you know ethanol is the basis for um, for most of the spirits that we use. Ethanol has a boiling point of around um, I think it's like 175 Fahrenheit. So mm-hmm. when you're boiling. Uh, a water, for example, you've already got rid of most of the alcohol. However, w- with spirits, with beer, with wines, 
we drink them for the flavor, not just for the effect. And so we're actually adding those flavors to our dish. Um, the alcohol itself, even though it, even though it burns off quite quickly, does have its own properties. So um, alcohol, because it's so um, because it burns off so quickly, it brings with it those uh, smell molecules, those taste molecules, mm-hmm. and it makes it makes most dishes pop. So you get that extra flavor. So that's why we add, for example, vodka to a tomato sauce. Um, mm. It really does, you know, even though it's boiling off, it's cooking off, it's bringing with it um, those, those flavors in the sauce. Yes, I think it heightens the flavor of many things. And because you can reduce it down and it starts in such a complex state, like, you know, you talk about all of the different complexities of the uh, liquors that you're using in the book, right? If you love a particular gin that's very robust with juniper and you reduce it down, you're compounding that juniper flavor. You're getting a lot of bang for your buck, essentially. Exactly. That's right. And actually, um, in fact, we don't use too much alcohol in most of the recipes. Most of them call for between a quarter of a cup, um, I think maybe a half a cup at most. There are some where we really pile on the booze um, <laughs> and we use different alcohols in yes. combination. But most of the time, we're, we're really limiting it to a small amount and then we're reducing it down, really getting a punch out of the flavor mm. and, uh, and bring with it all the, the chemical properties that the alcohol gives it. I think that's good insight. Um, let's begin with wine and acidity. I love acid, Emily. I, I happen to have an acidic palate matched with a very sweet palate. I'll add a few drops of lemon juice, of, as I have talked about for many years on this show, to almost every dish. It's that brightness that I love. But the acidity of wine can be overpowering. It can create bitterness. So you share some insight into creating balance. Yeah, so for, um, for white wine, I mean, we, I, we almost use it as we do lemon juice, which is that it's something that um, can really uh, bring that acidity to a dish. But you have to be careful, one, about over-reducing and two, using too much of it. Mm. It's, um, you know, it's an element in a dish that needs to be balanced with, with something fatty. Usually, you often find it in uh, wine with butter, because those, um, those milk solids add the richness yes. to the wine that gives it that balance. It's something that we use um, often. We use it in our cauliflower cheese, for example. Mm. Um, you know, we use uh, a half cup of dry white wine, so a decent amount of it. Um, but when it's uh, balanced with the, uh, with the milk and cheese, it creates a tanginess that is... Um, almost similar to cheddar, the way cheddar sort of makes your mouth pucker. Will you please both stay with me? We'll take a quick break. When we come back, let's cook. We are cooking with, yes, let's get to eating, Emily, shall we? Uh, (laughs) We are cooking uh, with beer and whiskey, wine and tequila, sherry and limoncello. Wait till you hear about the ultra crispy fish and oh, the plum and rum glazed chicken wings. We're dishing on the new book release from Emily and Matt Clifton called Cork and Knife. And you are going to want to check out this book. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, grab a snack and come on back.
Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This is an easy way to get your quick fix of culinary entertainment. We're cooking with wine and beer and more. Oh my. From the cookbook Cork and Knife, just released from bloggers Emily and Matt Clifton, the founders of Nerds with Knives. Okay, you mentioned, Emily, tipsy cauliflower cheese. It uses white wine. That's like the ultimate comfort food side dish. I love that you make um, Coco Riesling instead of Coco Van. So uh, talk about white wine and that dish specifically. You changed it up. And I like a variation on the traditional. You know, we really were interested in, we love cooking one pot chicken dishes. Mm. And we often cook them either with dry white wine or red wine. In this case, we wanted to take the traditional Coco Van, which uses the red wine and make a lighter version of it. So Coca Riesling is mm. um, a variation that has, it, it's a similar flavor profile in that it's long cooked. It has shallots and mushrooms and, um, and a little bit of mustard and tarragon, but we change it up by using Riesling, which is a semi-sweet wine. You don't want to use a very sweet Riesling because uh, they can become almost candy sweet. And in that case, I think it would overpower. But a semi-sweet Riesling, like the sweetness that you get from long simmered onions. Yes, caramelized um, onions was the yeah. first thing that came to mind. And I want to lick the page of that beautiful Dutch oven and the chicken just smothered in the sauce. And it's finished with brandy. And I love that you're using creme fraiche because it's my go-to and great cooks should know that creme fraiche in the French style is perfect for a dish like this, as we've talked about for many years here. And that is because it doesn't break, but it creates, it never curdles, but it creates that wonderful lusciousness that this is just a hearty Sunday dinner. Yeah, it's really, I, I love creme fraiche and I use it really as pretty much as often as I can. One, because it, because it doesn't break, it's much less um, nerve-wracking. Yeah, temperamental. You don't have to be right. as careful with when you add it to a dish. Sure. If you have a little bit of a simmer after you, know, after you add it, it's not going to break on you. And two, it has a very light kind of tartness. Mm. Less, yes. less tart than sour cream, but it does have a lot more flavor than heavy cream. So it's really a fantastic ingredient that I love to use both in, in savory and sweet dishes. I love that you both love creme fraiche and butter and a little bit more butter. Your uh, red wine blue cheese butter is a compound butter uh, set over a steak in a cast iron pan. Um, I wasn't invited to this night, Matt. <laughs> what, what happened? Yeah. Uh, what a brilliant, fabulous combination. And the color pop is amazing. Yeah, we were really happy with, with how, we, you know, we've always made a lot of compound butters. And one of the things that we love about them is that you can freeze them. So they're a really wonderful way to create an almost instantaneous sauce, grilled steak mm. or a pan-seared steak or vegetables. We use it, you know, we... Um, we use it, you know, we love it on um, sweet potatoes as well. It's just, uh, it's just a great um, flavor profile. And once you 
cook the wine down, um, you know, so we, we cook the red wine down with the shallots. So the shallots really end up taking on the red wine flavor and color, right. which is where that beautiful magenta comes from. color comes from. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that. You cannot just whip butter in the KitchenAid mixer and splash in some red wine. You right. have to know the method as to how to incorporate the reduction of red wine in because the liquid does not combine with the fat. Um, and you, you give a beautiful technique in the book. That will be one of the first recipes that I make. Um, oh, good. Yes. Let's move on to whiskey because I want to get to all of the alcohols. Um, you make whiskey refrigerator pickles. I'd never get to dinner. I'd have a cocktail and pickles. Yeah, the great thing is that they last a long time yes. in the fridge. So we, were, we made a massive batch of them. And I think we may have just finished the last, the, you know, the last few pickles, hmm. possibly this week. Nice. Yes, I think we did. Time for a new batch. Yeah, yes. And maple syrup and whiskey and garlic and peppercorns and mustard seeds and dill. I'm in. I, I mean, how, how could they be bad? Um, and your brown ale battered onion rings. Uh, those would be another perfect starter. What's the secret there, Matt? Um, I think there's something about brown ale. Brown ale is not something which a lot of uh, um, American tastes are, are too familiar with. It's, it's more of an, a sort of European import, um, but it has that maltiness, that sweetness, um, as well as the alcohol that we mentioned earlier. And, and it really gives the, the onion rings um, a, great, uh, a great sort of pop. And we actually use cornmeal in the batter, and that, that also helps with the texture and the, and the mm. crunchiness. Yeah, yeah. Good so crunch. It's like a, a great sort of mix of, um, of flavors. And we also have a little bit of vodka. And the vodka, because the vodka evaporates so quickly, that pulls out, you know, a lot of the, of the liquid. And that makes the, that gives you the crispness of the, uh, of the rings. Oh, you led me to water and I will drink. So let's talk vodka, please. Because, Emily, I was moving on to ultra crispy fish next. And Matt took us there. Is vodka the secret in most of your best batters? It actually is. And now that I've used it a few times, I can't go back. It really, what it does, we, we combine it with beer. So we, you know, we do have a, a traditional beer batter. The beer adds flavor and maltiness as well as the carbonation adds lightness. But what the vodka does is because it evaporates so quickly, it almost creates a really quick shell around whatever it is that you're frying so mm. that it's very, very crispy and not oily at all. So it's really a great combination. And now I, I throw vodka into just about any batter that I make. And, and just a splash? You can use just a splash, and it depends on what it is that you're, you're frying. Sure. So for the onion rings, for example, we use a quarter cup of the vodka and a cup of, of the brown ale. So the brown ale is really the flavor. The quarter cup of vodka, which is kind of um, the amount that I would recommend. Okay. If it's too little, it's not going to do what you want it to do. Sure. But you want it to be um, about a quarter of the liquid in, in the batter for frying for it to have its effect. And, of course, it, doesn't, it, it, it won't have flavor. It doesn't flavor anything. So it just gives you this light puffiness that is mm. really wonderful. Yeah, that can't be beat for sure. Oh, plum and rum glazed chicken wings. <laughs> uh, you say they fly off the plate, Liter literally. Those were kind of a fun surprise. And we hadn't cooked 
that much with rum in savory dishes, and I really wanted to experiment. The rum, you know, obviously has this sweetness, and we had a, a, a jar of plum jam that we had bought for something else a while ago, as, you know, jams last forever. Mm -hmm. So we just had it on the shelf, and, and I thought, one, I mean, I love the rhyme, and two, it, you know, <laughs> it just is, it, that combination is, is uh, likely going to taste good. Oh, for sure. And Chinese black vinegar in the, the marinade and the glaze, I am a huge fanatic for Chinese black vinegar, not only for Shalong Bao when you have the soup dumplings, but I love the depth of flavor and I'll put it in everything. So I was thrilled to see it in your ingredient list for the wings. Yeah, it's one of my favorite ingredients too because it has so much depth, mm. but it's also very palatable. It's not harsh at all. It's almost like a Chinese version of balsamic. Yes. In that kind of, exactly. you know, it has a little bit of sweetness, mm. um, but it also has that lovely um, vinegar bite that you want in anything sweet. Yes, so it offsets. Okay, I take it back. That will be the first recipe <laughs> that I make from the book. And then, um, Matt, leave us with something sweet, please. Although, um, I was going to ask you about unapologetically boozy onion soup, uh, but we'll save that for our next conversation. Dessert okay. wine chocolate truffles. So dessert wine chocolate truffles, um, which is one of, the, one of the pieces that we end the book with, um, is something that we bring out for very special occasions. Um, we had some good friends over for New Year's Eve last year, and we had uh, we had lobsters with them and some wine, and then we ended with truffles, and they didn't, they didn't want to leave. So um, <laughs> that, was a, that was a success. Yes, definitely so. And I do love the book. Congratulations to both of you. Um, you. And I know that you will too. From Emily and Matt Clifton, check out Cork and Knife. And you'll learn how to build complex flavors using bourbon and wine and beer and more in your dishes. Congratulations to both of you on stellar work. You can learn more at Nerds with Knives and find Cork and Knife on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. Thank you, Emily and Matt, so much for sharing your passion. There is lots more delicious conversation in your radio when we come back. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. is life create and savor yours welcome back chef jamie gwen in your radio to brine or not to brine that is the question stack the flavor cards in your favor as david says and listen up because david leet has a culinary lesson you do not want to miss David is a three-times James Beard award-winning food writer and the founder of Leet's Culinaria, where he shares hot food and dry wit. He's also the author of The New Portuguese Table and the very moving, honest, funny, and real memoir entitled Notes on a Banana. And David is an expert on many things. I'm very proud to have him as a culinary contributor to this show, and he's back with insight and instruction on a method you need to know about. 
His recent perspective piece published in the Washington Post shares his gastronomic discovery that you can make a better brine, a refined brine, he calls it, and he's here to dish. And I am always delighted when my friend David Leet stops by. Hi, David. Glad to have you back. Thanks, Jamie. It's always a pleasure <laughs> to be here with well, you. Well, thank you. Okay, uh, speaking of being back, could we go back 25 years, please? And could we talk sure. about Alan's Sunday suppers? I think that was <laughs> a little bit even before the time. I love Sunday supper. We do Sunday supper yeah. with my family, too, and there's something wonderfully special about it. Yours has a theme. Yeah, we, um, <laughs> Alan, my partner, uh, who I call the one. The one. Ever since we met... Sunday supper was very big for him, and I'm from New England, so Sunday supper was at 12 o'clock, but for him (laughs) it was always in the evening, and chicken was always a theme, Yes, and it started years and years ago, now almost 26 years ago, where he would make a chicken, and uh, I have to say, I hope he's not listening, they weren't very good chickens, (laughs) (laughs) he just put them in the oven and didn't know exactly what temperature to do it at, sometimes he did it on the grill and he marinated it in bottled Italian dressing, and uh, so there was never really um, any kind of consistency to it. Sure. And then eventually he stumbled upon the idea of brining, and that certainly upped the ante a little bit and upped the flavor a little bit, and and at least there was moisture going on. There was more voice. He likes the dark meat. I like the light meat. So I was getting some, um, I was getting at least a little bit more juicy uh, breast when I was, uh, when he was doing that. And then you know, I said, look, why don't you take herbs and why don't you put herbs in there? And so he threw them in and that was it. And I said, no, you have to boil it, like get all the essential oils out and all the volatiles out. And then he, ah, I don't want to do it, too much trouble. And when he did do it, there really wasn't that much bump in flavor. And so we went along with this wonderful, moist, somewhat flavorful chicken until I stumbled upon this idea of a refined brine. Right. So this is what I think is most genius about what you do. And those of us that have such passion for food, my Mm -hmm. listeners all included, is that we want to dig deeper, right? It becomes sort of that uh, thorn in your side to figure out and master, why can't I make this better? I have always believed in a brine, by the way. Mm And you believe in a brine, right? I mean, started very basic, salt and water, and then has been elevated to more flavoring and aromatics and throw some peppercorns in and, oh, do you have cloves? And, you know, that kind of thing. But never, I I don't think, has the brine been so uh, deeply investigated. And so you took it on uh, and you went to a couple of expert friends in the business yes and i love you did the research i was interested in trying to understand exactly what brining is but i also just wanted to know why can't we get more flavor into the meat short of taking one of those big hypodermic needles and (laughs) squirting something into deep into the tissue of the bird and so i had this idea what if i just blitzed everything and made it a liquid so we're talking taking, because people throw in carrots, they throw in leeks, they throw in celery, all in an attempt to get more flavor, which nothing really happened. So I thought, I'm going to blitz it all. So I made everything a liquid. I liquefied it, and uh, we have a, one of those very large wolf uh, blenders, like a Vitamix, and we just blitzed it. What was wonderful is that because it was a liquid, it allowed, uh, first of all, many, many cells in the carrot, in the, uh, the onion, the leeks, all of the herbs, 
more cells were broken open, which means they were releasing more of their liquid and more of any kind of volatile volatiles or any kind of essential oils were being dumped into the water. And we were shocked at how much flavor there was. And also the skin is very, very crisp. Thank you, as always, for sharing your passion, uh, because I always learn something. And I, I truly am very impressed by your 25 years of dedication to a better brine. Uh, and kudos to you for the Washington Post piece. I love talking food with you, David. You can find David Leet's Daily Dish of Deliciousness at LeetsCulinaria.com. It's L-E-I-T-E-S, Culinaria.com. And uh, for fabulous reads, please look for David's beautiful writing. You can find the refined brine piece in the Washington Post written by David Leet, Brining made his roast chicken juicy, but it didn't add flavor, so he reinvented it. Follow David on social at David Leet. And David, I can't wait for you to come back. We'll dish again soon. And here's to Sunday supper roast chicken. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. I yes. look forward to talking to you again. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of inspiring culinary conversation. Well, at least I hope you thought so. There's lots more fabulous food in your radio every weekend, so please tune in. And you'll find me serving up seconds, of course, at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, where you will find this recipe. It's my last bite for the week, my last ounce or tidbit of deliciousness. It is no secret to those that love me that I love a good cannoli. Oh, it's that crisp flaky shell and the cheesy creamy center. And when it's done right in true Italian style, it is out of this world. So I figure everyone appreciates a good cannoli, right? And if you need a quick cold dessert for a party, or if you're having a girl's night like I did last week, uh, I guarantee you the cannoli dip will be a hit because it was. It's very simply a combination of ricotta cheese, mascarpone, powdered sugar, a little heavy cream, and some mini chocolate chips. And then I put it out with dippers, graham crackers, or even better yet, chocolate-covered graham crackers, or biscotti, or shortbread cookies, it's just so good. And I will post my cannoli dip recipe once again on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend when the delicious conversation continues. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.